Welcome to the final episode of Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy, Season 2. I'm Christy Jobson, the Dean of Admissions at Harvard Law School. And I'm Miriam Ingber, the Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at Yale, Yale Law School. Yeah, we are law school. <laughs> That's the law school for which I work. <laughs> it's final reading season, so it's easy to make mistakes. <laughs> so we are closing out the second season of our podcast with your questions. Thank you to everybody who submitted a question this year. But first, as always, it's time for a game. Today, we're going to play 21 questions, but we're hoping for less than 21 questions. <laughs> we will try to guess what the other person is thinking by asking questions. And of course, we will keep them focused on law school admissions. So I can begin. Christy, I am thinking of a thing. Okay, question one. Is it a component of a law school admission application? Sometimes. Ooh. Um, is it an application component that every applicant is required to submit? No. Is it something that you read? Um, depends on how you define read. Okay. Yes. Yes. Technically, so. yes. Is it a standardized test score? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well... Is but it no, the GRE? But that's New York. You're not. Yes, keep going. Is it the GREs? It is. Oh, <laughs> since we were just talking about that before this episode started, <laughs> it was on uh, my mind. <laughs> I can't. I can't count how many qu questions that was. I didn't keep track, but maybe it was we not a lot. To it. it was not <laughs> like a lot. It was less four than or five. Ten. It was definitely maybe less than five. Miriam, I am thinking of a thing. Honestly, I don't even know where to start with that. Is it something you give or something you get? Is it something it's, I give or something I get or neither? It's something you go to. Something I, Miriam Ingber, go to. Um, you or a member of your staff would go, yes. Is it something that applicants go to as well? Yes. Is it something run by LSAC? Yes. Is it a forum? Yes, how did you get that? I don't know. I don't know if that's even a thing. Um, that's so funny. Do I have funny. to guess which specific one? No. I was going to say New York or Well, Boston. New York is the one I was thinking of. Oh, I was going to say New York is going to be my next guess because that's the one that's coming up. Uh, New York, New York. All right. Without further ado, it's We're time. We're too good at this. <laughs> spend too much time doing the same things. <laughs> it's like we can read one another's brains. That's so sad. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on the topic of 21 questions, it's time for your questions. Last season, we received a mix of questions that lent themselves to thematic treatment over the course of our final Q&A episode. This time, it felt a little more scattershot, which is great. It's like how we answer questions during information sessions. So we're just going to take them as they came in. So we're going to jump right to it. So the first question is... Would it be appropriate to include a link to a copy of my senior honors thesis on the resume that I submit to law schools? What do you think about that one, Christy? Yes, I think that's appropriate. I don't think it's inappropriate, but nor do I think it's, it's really necessary. I agree with that. I, I would not overdo it on the resume links. I think, you know, a couple at absolute, absolute most zero to a couple would be the way to think of, think about that. We definitely don't need a link to every op-ed you wrote for the college newspaper, for example. 
Although you can really go down rabbit holes with those college newspaper op-eds when people right. like you can them. also just Google those if you choose. And sometimes <laughs> it you turns out do. <laughs> so, but here's the real question. If someone provides a link to their senior thesis on their resume, will you click on the link and then read the thesis? So the answer to, will I click on the link is I cannot click on those links. Um, the file reading system, and I'm actually curious because you use the same system as us, um, that we use it completely takes links out. And we actually looked to see if there was a workaround to that. It is a security feature. There is no workaround that we were able to find. Um, so the links are completely gone from the file. So I would have to find the link somehow elsewhere and search for it. So if it's like a hyperlink, it's gone. Um, there's a way to go and download the documents, but it's actually many, yeah. many, many steps. And I would do that almost, I would do that extremely rarely. So the answer is technically I could, I very, very, very rarely do. Um, generally, if we want something, we will ask you for it in the application. And in my view, something like a thesis, I'm, I don't want to read one applicant's thesis and not all the applicants who have a thesis, those theses. So I, I generally would not. Yeah, I think oftentimes also the title of a senior thesis is enough for me to get a sense of what you were interested in and the types of research you might do. Um, I don't think I would, even if I could click on the link, I don't think I would. Not that one. There are other links I might click on or try to find, but the thesis link is one that I generally wouldn't. Theses for us often come up in the 250 word essay. And I like to see the, right. the summary if, if that's what the person chooses to talk about. They often come up in letters of recommendation as well. And that's a nice way to hear a little bit more about what someone who is an expert in the field has to say about the thesis. And we have a specific question about significant writing on our application form. So tip it, if you've written a senior thesis, you're going to tell us something about that senior thesis in your writing question. All right. Second question that came through. I attend a smaller state university because it didn't make sense for my family to move. Does that make my 4.0 GPA have less value than it would at a well-known university? So I just want to start by saying no, because I think people have a lot of anxiety about this. So no. But there's a lot more to the question of what is a four, not all 4.0s are the same. Um, and that has nothing to do with the fact that it's not a well-known university. Right. Yeah. I. This to me is the type of question that's really difficult to answer in a vacuum. And one of the unfortunate things about being on this podcast rather than in an interactive information session where I might ask the person sort of, you know, what's the motivation behind this and what are you concerned about? But the short answer is really no. Um and in fact, if you've gone to a less well-known university, it might even really help your application in the sense that many law schools, including our own, really aim to have a variety of undergraduate institutions represented in their student body. I'll just maybe mention some of the contextual factors that I, I think both of our schools look at when we're reviewing a transcript. So you can get a sense of, the, of what we're sort of alluding to here. So within a single university, um, rigor can vary tremendously in terms of the transcripts that we see. Um, there's a lot of different coursework people can choose to take. People can choose to take graduate level coursework as an undergraduate. They can choose to take introductory level coursework as a senior in college. Obviously, that can lead to the same um, end GPA, but through two very different paths. Um, even within the same major at the same college, the rigor of the coursework can vary quite a lot. So I think it's important when we're reviewing applications, we look at that transcript very carefully. If you think there's something really unusual about your transcript, I, I got a question recently um, where they were in a department that had 
a much more, they said, grade deflation compared to the rest of the college. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's something that you should ask a recommender to mention rather than including an addendum on that. That that sort of oddity within a transcript is good to come from a recommender. Yes. My advice to this listener is to try as much as you can, just not to stress about this. You, you went to the school that you went to. It sounds like you were really successful there. Um, now it's the time to focus on securing excellent letters of recommendation and your essays and other next steps. All right. Question number three, without further ado. All right, here it is. I have a 169 on my LSAT, but feel confident I can increase it by at least a few points. Would you recommend that I retake it to improve? If so, is the January LSAT too late to include on my application? Okay, I'll start with the timing question. No, the January LSAT is not too late to apply to schools. But if you've already submitted your application many months earlier in the fall, you might have a decision already. Not all schools will hold on their review for LSAT retakes. Do you hold for LSAT retakes? We do not. Neither do we. So both of our schools do not. So don't submit if you're planning to retake. Just wait and then submit once it's done. Exactly. Um, So on the more general question of whether you should retake, I think that's a really personal decision that depends on a, a whole constellation of factors. How strongly do you feel you can raise your score? By how much do you think you can raise it? What is the opportunity cost of spending more time studying for the LSAT? Uh, How does it feel when you think about studying for the LSAT again after you just retook it? Do you have the financial and the mental and the emotional and the temporal resources to commit to it? So I don't think there's necessarily a single right answer to this question. And the answer, just to say, the answer might be for this applicant to not retake and instead focus on the other components of their application and indeed their life as a whole. Yeah. For some people, retaking is going to be the right answer. They just feel like they have to do it just to feel like they did. Um, And then they'll do better and that'll be great. And for other people, not retaking is a completely, completely correct answer to this question. Okay. Another test question, which I'll summarize. The listener has struggled with technical disruptions on the LSAT flex and feels they have underperformed as a result. The listener asks, Do you think switching to the GRE after several LSAT tests is a good idea? Ah, technical disruptions are the absolute, absolute worst. I'm so sorry to hear about that. I know. We've both read so many addenda over the past 18 months about technical issues with both the LSAT Flex and the GRE at home. So listener, you are not alone. Yeah, this one is a really, really tricky one. Um, The reality is, is that once you've taken uh, the LSAT, we're going to see that, that else that cannot be um, left out of your application and we're not going to ignore it. It's going to be a part of our review. So if you did then take the GRE and perform significantly better, that certainly helps. It's additional data that shows that you can perform well on a standardized test, but it's not going to erase your LSAT performance. If I was in this listener's shoes, I probably would not start prepping for the GRE. It is a lot to ramp up for any standardized tests, let alone one that you haven't begun studying for before. And as we just noted, there's a real opportunity cost to prepping for a standardized test at the expense of other things you could do to improve your application, like honing your essays, developing relationships with recommenders, or engaging in volunteer experiences or your work. Yeah, I can think of situations where this might be the right choice, but I think they're relatively few and far between. All right, now a question that is near and dear to your heart. All right, Christy, do schools accept parents with young children? Is status as a parent seen as a disadvantage in the admissions process? Ah, 
From a former parent in law school, I must say, um, this will be challenging for you to go to law school listener, but you can do it. And uh, from our point of view as admissions officers, parenting is a wonderful perspective to have and to share in your law school classroom and community. And we both have parents in our student body. Um, Not an enormous number, I think. I think we would both be happy to have more, but uh, this is definitely not something that is viewed as disqualifying or a disadvantage in any way, shape or form. And in the HLS 1L class this year, we had four children born in the first month of school. We had, I think we had at least one ourselves. I remember bumping into one of my, I think he's now a 3L and his his wife is about to have a baby. That's so exciting. Yes. He had his first baby when he was a 1L. Oh, I love babies. And now his second when he was a 3L. (laughs) So, and most schools, by the way, will have an organization for families, which is a great resource for support and community while you're in law school. All right. Moving right along to our next question. Is it possible to receive admission to Harvard or Yale Law School with an online bachelor's degree? Yes, we have admitted people with online bachelor's degrees. That was a quick one. All right. Yes, agreed. Yes. (laughs) Another question. Uh, How realistic is it to get into law school with a GPA that's under a 3.5? So that's another question that's hard to answer without more context uh, on the file. I mean, it's certainly the case that a GPA um, below a 3.5, as my one of my colleagues describes it, that, that will be a headwind um, to application, but it's in no way disqualifying. And we definitely admit people every year and uh, with GPAs below 3.5. So we don't have any sort of GPA for at all, and we do admit in that range. I love that, a headwind. Yeah, I like that too. Yeah, I've sort of stolen it. That's a good way to describe it. And I would say just for you, listener, focus on putting your best foot forward in terms of showcasing your experience and your perspective and motivation for law and know that in both of our student bodies, there's plenty of people who matriculated with under a 3.5. Yes. I'll just say, too, there are certain undergraduate institutions uh, with significant, significant grade deflation where a 3.5 is actually an excellent GPA. It's in the top whatever percentile of the student body. I'm not sure if you fall into um, someone who came from a school like that. For those of you out there who do, please know that we're well aware of that. Um, and we definitely take that into account um, when we're reviewing applications. And I'm sure both of us could think of schools that fall into that category pretty readily. And as you were noting earlier, even within the same undergraduate institution, a 3.5 out of one major is not the same as a 3.5 yes. out of another program. That's exactly right. Yeah. And even people who applied, a grade inflation has gone up over time. And you're looking at people who graduated many years ago. The, the GPA from the same school can mean something different. You can see upward trends in people's GPAs. You can see excellent GPAs from a graduate degree, um, less so from undergraduate. There, there can be all sorts of uh, factors that can sort of um, be in the opposite direction. I guess for, that can be tailwinds in the face of that headwind. <laughs> Shifting gears with an important question. This one is a bit long, but the context is important to include, and it's one we hear quite a lot. So bear with me as I read the whole submission from our listener. Should mental health or or neurodiversity struggles be disclosed at all in the application? Disclosed only if they're under control now? Which situations would it be wise to disclose or not disclose? If they should or can be disclosed, would they be best in a personal statement, an addendum, or a diversity statement? It's not my first choice to include it in my personal statement because I don't want it to be my, quote, origin story, close quote, but I'm curious what your insight is. I think this is a really good question. I think so, too. And it's interesting that the listener frames it as a disclosure question. And I 
I, I, from my point of view, I don't think it is. Unless a school is asking about your mental health and neurodiversity directly on the application form. And to be clear, I can't think of any school that does. And if a school did, I think that would be very inappropriate in my view. There is no obligation to, quote, disclose any of this. Contrast it with your obligation to disclose academic integrity issues or other character and fitness issues, which are typically asked about directly in the application form or instructions. But if this is something you want to share with an admissions committee, I think you could include it in a diversity statement if it doesn't feel like it fits in your personal statement. Something about the language of this question and the way the listener writes it makes me think that the applicant would prefer not to share this at all, though. And if that's the case, listener, that's completely fine. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think this is the kind of thing that you can choose to disclose, but you absolutely don't have to disclose. I think it generally falls into the category of more challenging topics, um, in which case, which I don't think are in any way out of bounds for a law school application. But I think the more challenging the topic, um, you have to be more careful that you write about them in a way that's professional. Um, and so I would just be mindful of the way that you write about. Uh, we are not owed any of your personal medical information as part of the application. Um, and this might be a good moment to just kind of say what, in my view, are the roles of a personal statement, diversity statement, and addendum. Because I Great think point. when you Great think point. about it in that way, you might, I think that this might fall into any of those, um, but for different people for different reasons. A personal statement is, for most people there, as you put it, I think very nicely, your origin story. You know, why law school? Why, who are you and where are you now and why are you going to law school and what kind of lawyer do you want to be? Or some some parts of that. To the extent that your history um, you know, of mental health issues or neurodiversity is related to that. So if you, for example, are a disability rights activist because of your own um, history with disability um, issues, it might in fact be a really great topic for a personal statement to start with that. An addendum is... There is something, some blemish in my application caused by an external event. And I'm going to tell you what that external factor or event was to explain away that blemish. So if, for example, you had um, a mental health issue flare up in college that semester or two, your GPA was significantly lower. You might want to use an addendum for that. Up to you whether you just want to say a health issue or you want to go into, say, a mental health issue. You don't even have to go so far as to say mental health issue if you're less comfortable. No details. Are required. And in fact, I think better to have very little detail. An addendum is meant to be very short, very factual, no drama, no narrative. And then a diversity statement is meant to be for us something that's core to your identity that isn't otherwise covered to the extent that your um, neurodiversity um, or your history of mental health issues is core to your identity. You can certainly feel free to discuss it and that aspect of your identity or your background in a diversity statement. Does that maybe... That's a helpful way to, to frame it. I think that's exactly right. Um, and again, I'll just I'll just double down on. I sense from this listener's question, they're hoping that the answer is no, they don't have to disclose that. And that's exactly right. You you don't have to share any of this if you don't feel like you want to, and it doesn't fit in with your application materials. Agreed, a hundred percent. All right, and another submission that I'd like to read in full. So it starts with the basic question. When is it okay to exceed the conventional length of background in your personal statement? The listener goes on. I've been told that half a page is about all you want this background information to be. 
but it seems like it would be difficult to understand me as an applicant to gloss over my background. For example, if you have experienced multiple traumatic events that impacted your GPA, would you explain the full story in your personal statement? So that's interesting. I've actually never heard that conventional wisdom before. Um, and most conventional wisdoms I've at least run across before in my experience. Same here. I, I'm actually not sure where that half page guidance is coming from. Yeah. So official, you're hearing it official from those who are, who are in the know. We don't think there is a convention on a half page of background information in a personal statement. I think it's much more important to try to create this sense of movement that we've discussed before in our personal statement mini series. So I wouldn't have an entire personal statement that is only on your background or your identity. Um, I think you want to make sure that at least some of it is focused on other things. And those could include your current work experience, the current things you're studying, your future goals, your future aspirations as well. But I think that's less a rule about any length for any of those particular stages and more about just content and flow in general. Agreed. And as for uh, the the comment at the end about impacting your GPA, a personal statement, in my view, is never a place to talk about your GPA uh, or factors that impacted your GPA in an explicit way. If you must talk about that, that would be for a very, very brief addendum. And I think less than half a page, to be frank. Yep. Short, concise, to the point. Yeah. All right, Christy, this is a question for you from a potential transfer applicant. Ah, and we've talked about doing a whole episode for transfer applicants in the future. Yes. If we can do a season three, then I think that will definitely be an episode in it. All right. So here is the question. How, if at all, do expectations of and views on extracurricular involvement vary between first time and transfer applicants? So... I think you could think about that in terms of extracurriculars and undergrad, but also specifically considering the limitation um, on time to do an extracurriculars during one L year. So we put transfer applicants in the context in which they come. So namely someone who just finished their first year of law school. We both know that first year law students typically have less bandwidth for co-curricular activities. And while it's nice to see some involvement in your law school community outside the classroom, it doesn't need to be anything that was particularly intensive or time-consuming. And also different schools may give 1Ls more or less opportunities for co-curricular options. And so that's something we would think about as well. It's all about context. Totally agree. Not not much to add to that. Yeah, we're not expecting you to be editor in chief of, of law review when you're applying as a transfer student. That's for sure. All right. Another transfer question. How, if at all, does the ranking of the school that the student would be transferring in from impact consideration for admission? You intentionally asked the Canadian who kind of hates rankings, the ranking question, right? <laughs> That, that of was course. mean. All right. All right. I, I definitely still see um, what you're getting at. I think it's a very reasonable question. So I think this dovetails with Christie's commentary um, on looking at transfer applicants um, in context. So, you know, we we tend to we, we take transfer applicants from, you know, a range of schools. Uh, they tend to be applicants from some of our peer schools. Um who think that YLS would be a better fit either for personal reasons or for various curricular reasons or or applicants who are probably applying pretty widely to our peer schools who think that coming to YLS or one of our peer schools would really change the sorts of opportunities they have access to. Um, And, you know, I think from any school people are applying to, we expect them to have done very well. I think that's true almost regardless of the school that they're applying from. Anything to add on that or... 
I would say also that um, letters of recommendation are crucial for the 1L application process, of course. Um, in the transfer application process, I think those letters of recommendation are coming from faculty members who have taught you in law school. And so they take on a real immediacy in the evaluation of the application, particularly if like at our two schools, there's a faculty review involved. So during your 1L year, really, if you're thinking about transferring, really think about developing those faculty relationships, because that's part of the context in which your application sits. And in some ways, dare I say, what, what the recommenders have to say about you uh, is in many ways more important than the ranking, some U.S. news ranking of the school itself. A third transfer question. This one is HLS specific, so it's going straight to you. Um, <laughs> so this is from someone who was waitlisted at HLS this past year. And then they, they then submitted, I guess, some letters of continued interest, expressing their interest in attending. If they apply to transfer, are you going to go back and look at those? And then should they address their the reasons for transferring to Harvard in a personal statement? Uh, so as to the first question, yes, the entirety of your previous application or applications are viewed alongside your transfer application. And about half of our transfer pool each year are reapplicants. So please rest assured, we are very used to this. And a whole heck of a lot of those reapplicants were waitlisted in the prior year. So that's that's very important. And as to the second question, I would imagine that after an entire first year of law school, your reasons for wanting to attend another particular school may have shifted and changed. Whatever you said in those letters of continued interest, no one is going to hold you to it if, for example, your goals and ambitions have changed. Um, and I think it's okay on the flip side to touch on some of the same reasons why you want to go to Harvard, but perhaps in a different light, just because you will have had a whole nother year on earth and a whole year in law school. I'll just say generally your personal statement for your transfer application should not be the same one you use for law school. Those read very Please badly. No. Please yeah. no. It's, it's a disadvantage to keep it the same. When people rewrite them once they've been in law school, they tend to have just a different sophistication to them, which makes perfect sense because now they're coming from law students, not from people who've never been to a day of law school. And I will say for YLS, we say, no, 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 we don't want to hear a YL law school in the regular application pool, which is true. It's not true for transfer students. I think it's perfectly understandable. Transferring is a very different process. It has real costs in addition to the benefits and really explaining why Yale Law School or why I think any law school specifically as a transfer student is a wise thing to do. The transfer process in general is just much more direct. And I think you see that in the strongest personal statements in the transfer cycle. They're very direct about their goals, about their purposes for transferring and about the schools that they want to go to. Exactly. All right. And that's that. That's a wrap up of the second season of Navigating Law School Admissions with Miriam and Christy. All right. What do you think? Are we up for a third season next summer? You know, I can always say more, Christy. <laughs> yes, the two of us are never short on things to say. Well, hopefully the stars align for us to get back on the microphones next year. Listeners, thank you so, so much for joining us this season. From pipeline programs to personal statements, we hope that these episodes help you navigate your own law school admissions journeys. And a special thank you to all our guests this season. And of course, Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. 